This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with John Keane. John is a professor of politics at the University of Sydney, and he joined me for a fascinating chat about his new book, The Shortest History of Democracy. John takes us through the three phases of democracy, assembly democracy, electoral democracy, and monetary democracy. He also evaluates how democracy is travelling in Australia. It is an absolute pleasure and delight to welcome back onto the show John Keane, who is a professor of politics at the University of Sydney. He's the author of many books, including The Life and Death of Democracy, The New Despotism, as well as this book we're about to discuss, The Shortest History of Democracy, which is out now through Black Ink Books. I welcome John onto the show, and it's great to have you for a third time, John. Thank you very much, uh, Amy. Good morning to you and and everybody. I'm delighted to talk some sense on uncommon sense again. (laughs) Well, that's great. We did have such a great response to your last chat about the new despotism, and it seems that now uh, things have only progressed in that domain and what could be more overt or obvious than the situation between Russia and Ukraine, with Russia invading Ukraine and Putin's style of despotism on show for all to see in, in its kind of uh, really overt glory? Yes. Uh, the book, The Shortest History of Democracy, appeared... Uh, It was written during lockdown in 2021, but it appeared uh, in a period, as we all know, uh, when Biden's talk of the global struggle between democracy and autocracy is is unfolding under our noses and before our eyes. And the book tries to address that big issue of the future of democracy, but it does so by looking backwards over the shoulders of the present uh, to try to make some sense of a different sense of of where democracy came from, uh, and the, the the basic point, Amy, is to say that um, having a pair of eyes in the back of our heads is really important in trying to make sense of what's going on in matters of democracy in the present. Uh, the rule is, you know, people who are ignorant of the past inevitably misunderstand the present. That's the starting point of this this book. Yeah, I'm sure every historian would very fiercely agree with you. Uh, and it is great to see just how detailed this history is. And no doubt there's a lot more you could have put in there if you wanted to. But because it's a shortest history, I'm sure you had to be prudent there are so many great quotes in this book and and the introduction is a really wonderful way of starting to dip your toe into the water. And one particular quote that I loved was from a Chinese writer, Lin Yutang, mm-hmm. who you say once said that humans are more like potential crooks than honest gentlefolk and that since they cannot be expected always to be good, ways must be found of making it impossible for them to be bad. I don't know if I could find a better way to say something like that. Yeah, you know, that quote from Lin Yutang, who is today a forgotten figure, but who was uh, during the Chinese Republic uh, leading up to 1949 revolution, who was very famous uh, outside of China and inside of China, that quote uh, is in a way an anthem of, of my book. 
and it's an anthem for the following reason that you know normally when we speak about democracy or many people do speak about democracy as if it's some sort of recipe for paradise on earth you know that it stands for um, the equalization of life chances, for the dignity of people, uh, for closing the gap between rich and poor, etc. Of course, that's um, still the case, and it's 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 been from the beginning, you know, a core theme of all Democrats and democratic politics. But running through this book is a different twist that I try to give to the whole idea of democracy, which is that it's a weapon that um, humans have created to deal with bossing and bullying. You know, that democracy is suspicious of arbitrary power. And Lin Yutang, you know, puts it very nicely. That was written in the 1930s in a pretty dark period. You know, that democracy, um, the reason why we have elections, the reason why we have public accountability mechanisms, the reason why we have civil societies that that can sometimes um, shout against those who rule is because um, power corrupts. And absolute power, as the 19th century phrase has it, you know, corrupts absolutely. So democracy is for well-being and equalization of life chances, but it's also, um, it's got an anarchic quality. It has a punk quality to it. It's on bad terms with with arrogance, uh, with hubris, uh, with fools, you know, who are in charge of institutions. Yeah, yeah. I love that you uh, say that about it, that it has this punk quality. It's It's not going to take fools I know you've said that it has a, a no-nonsense way of dealing with power, and obviously that is a very appealing thing to it. And you've said as well that democracy is an alternative to tyranny, oligarchy, aristocracy and monarchy, for example. So yeah. we know what it's an alternative to. Given that history is so important, as you say, let's look at what democracy actually is uh, and where it came from, because that is also something that's very illuminating and uh, definitely speaks some uncommon sense. Yes, let's. Yes. First of all, Athens, everyone thinks that Greece, uh, you know, is this birthplace of democracy and, you know, Western civilization. We see, you know, the Ramsey Centre, um, no doubt, probably thinking similar things and, you know, talking about the brilliance of Western civilization. But that's not necessarily what actually happened. So I wonder, could you tell us what did happen? Yes. So this book does spring more than a few surprises, uh, I hope readers will find. And one of them is that it questions what was, in fact, a 19th century view uh, that's still with us today, that it all began in Athens. You know, when when people are asked uh, where did democracy begin, what's its birthplace, they would probably say Athens. And if they visited Athens, they will see the Acropolis and they'll see the place where the assembly uh, of male citizens met, etc. Well, this is a 19th century uh, tale that actually has been upended by archaeologists and historians. And what I try to do in the book is to assemble that new evidence that particularly was was um, dug up 
by a Danish archaeologist named Torkild Jakobsen. And basically what Jakobsen, in his fieldwork in areas like Syria and Iran, came up with in the 1930s, is he discovered that assemblies of people, face-to-face assemblies of people were common at least 2,000 years in that region, at least 2,000 years before Athens. And that the story that I tell is that those assemblies of equals, you know, of mainly men meeting in public face-to-face to decide taxation and matters of, you know, peace and war, that those men gathered together as equals. That principle of what I call assembly democracy is the first form of democracy. That was an invention of the Syria Mesopotamia uh, region. And those assemblies as a way of handling power were transported through time to the east, to what is today Pakistan and, and India. They also were transported through the Phoenicians to through into the um, into the Mediterranean area, and the Greeks in Athens, in particular, uh, had the the gall to claim them as their own invention. Well, it's not uh, true, and that 19th century view that it all began in Athens needs uh, radical uh, radical rethinking. The point is that the earliest forms of democracy, even the word itself, have Eastern origins. Democracy meant from around 2500 BCE onwards uh, through the Greek world, democracy meant self-government of the people. And the people were typically men who consider themselves as equals who feared tyranny, who saw no reason for having monarchy, uh, who introduced into the world uh, a practice that supposed that people are just good enough to govern themselves and that on earth they can decide how they will live in the present and how they can shape their futures. I say in the book that this so far is still the most radical political idea that we humans have created. And it's a gift, so to say, from the East. It's not a Western invention. You do say that democracy, the word, has no known wordsmith. And um, you've referenced there, you know, where it came from, where we think it came from, saying that the roots of the word are minimally traceable to the Linear B script of the Mycenaeans seven to ten centuries earlier. So, I mean, it is quite astounding to think that it went back that far to, you know, the time where, uh, which we talk about linear A and linear B and tablets and scripts. And I mean, yeah, it, it is quite amazing. Yes. In the book, I tantalise my readers uh, a bit by uh, pointing out honestly that there are lots of things we don't know in the history of democracy. Democracy uh, keeps her secrets close to her chest. And one of them is we don't know who exactly were the first individuals or groups to to use it. But the evidence uh, coming out of the Eastern Mediterranean is that, yes, Linear B 
a language that was only decoded in the early 1950s, and it is, uh, it's obviously connected to linear A, which has still not been decoded. In linear B, uh, this language of the Mycenaeans, there were words like damos and, and damakoi, and damos um, referred to a group of people who once owned property, who were uh, stripped of their property and their powers and who were rendered landless and powerless. Uh, so it was a word that described um, people who were uh, uh, in the lower strata and who, you know, were rendered uh, powerless. And so the family of terms that came to be born in the Greek democracies, the family of terms have much older roots, going back at least a thousand years. It's a, it's a puzzle, it's an enigma, but the book emphasizes this point because once again, the, Amy, the, the, the origins of, of democracy is more complicated than the old 19th century story that it all began in Athens. Yeah, and you did say she and her, which picks up on another point you make, which is that democracy has always been seen as a woman and symbolic portraits of her have always been female. Yes. What are your thoughts on why that is the case, especially because in those early times, as you point out, really the people who were empowered by democracy were predominantly men? Yes, uh, another puzzle, another paradox, and, you know, that there has been a long-standing complaint until today that democracy principally serves men. Well, one of the complications of that story is that in classical Greek, of course, the word democracy is feminine, and uh, running throughout its history, there are symbols of democracy that I try to assemble uh, in, in this book, and there are several illustrations, uh, where democracy is a woman. Most recently, in the Sudanese uprising uh, against the military dictatorship uh, during the last uh, couple of years, a woman named Allah Salah became famous for urging crowds to stand up, to, to be courageous, to resist um, this horrid military dictatorship in, in Sudan. In Hong Kong, she appears as a woman with a helmet and an umbrella tucked under her arm and a gas mask. And she appeared in Tiananmen Square in 1989 in, in Beijing. And going back, this goes back through time, uh, there is an image in Italy in the 16th century of democracy as a woman, as a peasant woman, holding a pomegranate in one hand, a symbol of the people, you know, many seeds, and in the other, a handful of snakes, presumably poisonous snakes, and going all the way back to Athens. If you visit Athens, you will see this wonderful uh, stone carving from around 330 BCE, where democracy is crowning old man Demos, She's a woman. So it's a puzzle that I try to talk about in, in the book. Uh, and I think that the short answer to, to your question, Amy, is that democracy as a woman is, she, she's represented as a woman because democracy gives life to human beings on the face of the earth. She's represented as a source of life-giving energy. 
there are times when democracy is feared. Uh, certainly the Athenians were, were worried that the goddess of democracy could take revenge on the men who took decisions that were, let's say, blind or foolish. And there are those moments uh, where democracy as a woman is feared, as in that Italian uh, representation of democracy as a peasant, you know, as a rough, roughly dressed peasant woman with snakes in her left hand. So there you have all the imagery of masculine representations of, of woman as life-giving, um, as to be feared, and actually despised, all mixed uh, together. Well, of course, what's been happening in the last two centuries is globally an attack on much of that imagery and demands that are coming from all kinds of sources, unfinished, that women are entitled uh, to dignity, to lives freed from violence, that women are entitled to live their lives differently than men. And that is un an unfinished revolution, but it is part of the story of, um, of women and democracy. And you do have a section on gender in Athenian democracy. There's a really interesting quote that you say when you're talking about the good citizen coming equipped with a phallus, uh, you say that its democracy was a phallocracy and that essentially there was a, a real focus on the men in public life gathering together. There was also a clear kind of expressions of homosexuality linked in with democracy as well. And also that the system of Athenian democracy rested upon slavery. So it may not fit our presumptions of what we would think a democracy would count of as now. Yes, you put it more succinctly and beautifully than I do in the book, uh, Amy. I think that this idea that Athens, which is the best studied early democracy, the best studied assembly democracy is, uh, is the phrase that I use. In that, in standard views, you know, it's all a male show, that uh, it's men with phalluses who, you know, rule, and they rule women in the private sphere and their children and the slaves who cook and clean and, and do other household uh, tasks. That view was challenged in the work of probably one of the greatest uh, scholars of, of Athens, a French woman named Nicole Leroux, during her lifetime's work, she's sadly no longer with us, who wanted to say that, you know, gender fluidity was a very striking feature of life in, in Athens. So although there was this, this hierarchy, you know, that in, in the agora, in the public meeting place in Athens, uh, was entirely a male show, and although underneath was the private sphere, compared with the public, the private sphere where women were regarded as um, the property of, of men and women were engaged in the necessaries, producing the necessaries of life, in fact, the imagery uh, doesn't quite map onto that. Democracy was a woman and within the sphere of masculinity, there was widespread acceptance 
of fluidity and the sense that homosexuality, as we would now call it, is was completely normal. So drinking parties, for instance, were rather orgiastic, to say the least, from the records that we have. So democracy helped loosen. It's a theme that runs through the It helped loosen, you know, boundaries. It challenged orthodoxies. And, and signs of that are already evident in the Athenian democracy. And it's a theme that runs through the book that, that one of the things that democracy does when its spirit and its substance, you know, takes a grip on people is that it persuades people that the way things are now is not necessarily the way things have to be, that the future can be different than the present. Democracy denatures power. It uproots uh, certainties. It introduces to the world a sense of uncertainty about who, who governs and where our lives are going. Elections are just one example of that. We don't know who will be governing Australia in after the May elections. Democracy, that's one of the features of democracy, that it denatures power. And that already happened uh, in Athens in matters of gender. I'm speaking with John Keane, Professor of Politics, and we're talking about his book, The Shortest History of Democracy. Now, John, you did just mention electoral democracy, really, or you hinted at it um, with elections, but of course there is then monetary democracy as well. So I wanted to jump to these two areas. First of all, up to the obvious next step, which is electoral democracy. Oh. How did we get to that point from, you know, assembly democracy to something like electoral democracy, which involved political representation as one of its key features? Well, the book documents, Amy, several revolutions of imagination in the history of democracy, and one of them took place towards the end of the 18th century, where democracy was reimagined to mean self-government of the people through their elected representatives. So, what happened in the last quarter of the 18th century was something that the Greeks, for example, Athenians, would not have understood. The Greeks didn't ha even have a word for representative or representation, and they didn't hold periodic elections. They met, you know, a dozen times a year to decide things, but the notion of periodic elections was absent. So in the uh, last quarter of the 18th century, in the Atlantic region, in Spanish America, in North America, and in Europe, champions of democracy began to demand that there ought to be elections to parliaments, and that these elections should involve uh, multi-party systems, that there should be freedom of the press, that there should be freedom of public assembly, and that government should rest on the consent of the governed. Now, it set up all sorts of interesting questions about my, you know, majority rule and what about minorities. But the point is, a revolution happened in the way that democracy was thought about. So, for the first time, and I try to show the old roots of, of this, the deeper roots of this, but for the first time, democracy comes to be seen as principally a synonym for periodic free and fair elections. And 
That mantra is still repeated today, for example, by journalists and plenty of academics and plenty of citizens think that, without much awareness that actually it happened relatively late in the history of democracy. And thereafter, from that time that democracy gets reimagined, you know, uh, bloody struggles uh, begin for who counts as a citizen, and that is the story of the struggles that took nearly two centuries to complete, the struggles for one person, one vote, for the inclusion of not just the middle classes, but also workers and women, and then, of course, uh, the inclusion of colonial subjects. That took nearly two centuries to unfold, and in the story that I tell, electoral democracy came to something of a, a high point immediately after World War One, then fell into a deep crisis during the 1920s and 1930s. And that middle part of the book, in effect, describes a tragedy, because by 1941, uh, there were only 11 electoral democracies left on the face of the earth. Australia was uh, one of them. But most experiments in building a democracy, you know, with free and fair elections failed during those uh, fateful two decades. Mm. And so what were the alternative modes that seemed to have taken over, given how lacking there were in terms of democracies at that point? Well, the great crisis generated by World War One and the aftermath of World War One, uh, and of course, another global war that broke out in the mid-30s in our part of the world, in Asia, and then in Europe in 1939, gave birth to several alternatives. One was a return to monarchy. That happened in the former Yugoslavia. Another more prominent trend in the 1920s and 30s, an attack on electoral democracy, electoral parliamentary democracy, was the birth of, of strong military dictatorships. That happened, for example, in Poland. And then, never happened before in the history of humanity, the birth of totalitarianism. That's a word that dates from the early 1920s. It came in the form of Mussolini. Uh, it came in the form of, uh, of course, Franco in uh, Spain and Hitler and Imperial Japan in our region. Totalitarianism had, I say in the book, you know, some democratic qualities. I put that in quotation marks, you know, because total rule was in the name of the people. You know, it sounded democratic, but in fact, totalitarianism, as we now know, was a system of one-party rule, filled with fear, lots of, of violence, and, and of course, uh, war. That totalitarianism uh, brought democracy to the point of democide, to the point of, of death. So the end phase of electoral democracy, the second in three phases in the history of democracy, that end phase of electoral democracy is a pretty pretty sad uh, a pretty sad dynamic and I try to describe it uh, in all of its uh, bloody and tragic detail in the book mm. yeah yeah absolutely and I know that um, in this period as you say civil society was able to flourish because it also meant that with the advent of 
parties and factions. There was also the involvement of non-government associations like trade unions and businesses, different interest groups getting involved in politics and in democratic systems. So there's also that going on in the background. And obviously you say free and fair elections are, is kind of a key platform of this form of electoral democracy. But as we know, democracy now goes far beyond just free and fair elections, although that is a really clear and essential component to it. So I wonder if we could jump to monetary democracy, as in M-O-N-I-T-O-R-Y, and this third phase and what that entails and looks like. Yes, um, I'm glad you spelled it out, Amy, because uh, I have given talks where people think I'm speaking about monetary democracy. The idea in the last part of the book is that uh, during the 1940s, when electoral democracies were on their knees, and there was a period of total war, totalitarian rule, and so on, great upheavals of, of people's lives, um, statelessness, and so on. It was in the 1940s that another revolution happened in the way that democracy was understood. Uh, the, the democratic imagination, you know, flourished. And it's in that decade that I've studied and write about in the book that Democrats, small d Democrats, began to realize that the trouble with making elections central to the whole notion of democracy is that it could it could give rise to Hitler's, you know, that a party could develop, win enough support in the name of the people and go on to destroy democracy. And so the idea in the 1940s was that there needs to be built in to the idea and the practice of democracy something other than something beyond free and fair elections. Democracy came to mean nothing less than free and fair elections, but something much more. And that something much more was the building of institutions that could check and balance elected governments, watchdog institutions that would guard over not only elected governments to ensure that they didn't abuse their power, but also would come to watch over corporations and other abuses of power. So it's in the 1940s that democracy came to, to be reimagined as what I call monetary democracy. M monitor, it's not such good poetry, but it's the accurate term for describing the way that democracy comes to mean the public accountability, the, the, the permanent scrutiny of power by watchdog and barking dog institutions. And since that time, it doesn't get much journalistic coverage, but it's important to see that more than 100 different types of power monitoring institutions have been born since roughly the late 1940s. You know, election monitoring, the right of workers to elect representatives to governing boards, as in uh, the German system, participatory budgeting, uh, it's a Brazilian invention, truth and reconciliation, tribunals, public forums, famously 
popularized by one in South Africa, and there is going to be one in South Australia. I mean, these are among the institutions, very often paradoxically unelected, that play, I think, a very important role in preventing the abuse of power, of preventing arbitrary exercises of power. So the whole ecology of power and the contestation of power changes under conditions of monetary democracy. And when you add to this the internet, digital networked information, then we live in an age, we all recognize this, in which scandals are a daily, you know, chronic matter. So all of this is, uh, would, would surprise greatly Athenian Democrats, and all of this would hugely surprise the champions of electoral democracy at the end of the 18th century. They would barely recognize the substance and the spirit of democracy. Would you add anti-corruption commissions to a kind of idea of monetary democracy? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about anti-corruption commissions, we don't have one in Australia at the federal level. We need one. Mm. Think about their logic. Well, what they are, um, they're, they're institutions that typically are not elected. They sit aside elected governments. Their job is to collect information publicly to monitor the way governments uh, function. And in some cases, globally, they also are briefed to look at the way corporate power is exercised. And when they have teeth, anti-corruption commissions blow whistles on violations of, of rules of integrity in public life. And if they've really got sharp teeth, they have the power to subpoena witnesses and plaintiffs and to actually recommend that uh, there be criminal proceedings against those who have abused power. Anti-corruption commissions are, are actually a symbol of this new monetary democracy that I'm talking about. Their work doesn't conform to the, to the electoral cycle. You know, their work is ongoing, it's permanent. And the point is that if you have a democracy without an anti-corruption commission, then corruption will flourish, that's for sure. Absolutely, as as we know is the case. And obviously there's um, some state-based anti-corruption commissions who've done important work in recent years. I was really reflecting on this last chapter in particular and thinking about how we have seen whistleblowers treated really poorly in this country and obviously national security laws have been one reason why or how they have been treated in such a way. Uh, we've also seen constant underfunding of bodies like the Australian National Audit Office, a kind of indirect undermining of their work in a sense. We just saw in New South Wales anti-protest laws go through the parliament passed by Liberals and Labor. So thinking about how Australia is performing, I guess, if you think about a democracy and what its aims are and what you say its function is to be, and we're seeing, I guess, 
governments and parliamentarians bring in laws that seem to undermine the functioning of democracy. I wonder if you could share your personal and intellectual reflections on Australia's position at the moment and how it's functioning as a democracy. Yeah, Amy, I, I feel, in a word, melancholy, and I perhaps better explain myself. You know, once upon a time, as a show in this book, in the 19th century, Australia was an important laboratory of, of democratic innovation in the era of electoral democracy. Women won the right to vote and the right to stand for the first time in the world in my native South Australia, 1894. Australia developed written constitutions under imperial conditions, and they were often accepted, for example, in Victoria and, and South Australia, Tasmania, new written constitutions that were ratified by more or less adult male suffrage. Australia elected the first social democratic Labour government in the early years of federation, the first time in the world, etc., etc. We introduced industrial tribunals, uh, which functioned as monitoring bodies around World War I. Since that time, a lot of things have happened, and I'm obviously summarising and simplifying, but in the last decade, I think we've become a complacent democracy, and there is certainly need for institutional uh, reform. I'm not sure who's going to deliver it, but think about this. We have not only no federal anti-corruption commission, we have no federal body that allows our Indigenous peoples the right of representation in public affairs before parliaments. They were abolished. Uh, that was the, the previous body was abolished under the Howard government. We don't have a properly functioning audit office and, as you say, underfunded. We have a flourishing, let's say, industry of corrupt patronage. Our permanent residents don't have the right to vote. We have several million permanent residents in our country who love the country, who work, who pay their taxes, but they have no rights to vote. The list goes on. And what I think is that this democracy, which has become complacent, uh, needs shaking up. And the point you know, it brings us back to fundamentals. Why is democracy a good thing? Well, yes, democracy is a good thing because it offers, unlike any other form of government, it offers dignity to all people. It, it is against violence. It is for, it, for self-determination of peoples through elected representatives. But it is also a way of handling power that is against bossing and bullying and to the and manipulation and lying and deception seen in this way we have a democratic shortage a shortage of its spirit and its substance and the renewal the politics of its renewal i think is one of the the great priorities uh, that is now facing our country i think we're going to hear a lot about this or much more about this uh, in the election campaign that's begun.
Yeah, absolutely. I agree, John. And I could talk to you for a lot longer because I have so many more questions, but we'll have to finish it there. I'm so grateful to you for taking us through just some of the topics that you bring up in this book. It's such an extensive book, even with the title, The Shortest History of Democracy. You fit so much in there and it's very entertaining and engaging as well as thought-provoking. So thank you very much for writing this book and also joining me today to explain it. Amy, it's been a great pleasure again, and I hope we'll speak on another occasion. And I urge everybody listening to, yeah, get hold of uh, a copy of the book because it's, uh, I hope, readable and it will generate all kinds of thoughts, I think, that are locally relevant. But thank you very much for the invitation. A pleasure. I hope we do meet again too. I've just been speaking with John Keane, who is Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney, the author of many books, which I mentioned at the top of this chat. And this book is called The Shortest History of Democracy, and it's been published through Black Ink. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.